So we are starting our new series, Marriage 2.0, not to be confused with Family 2.0. I'm not sure that our communications team branded it the right way, time for an upgrade. We mean upgrade your relationship. Let's just make that clear. It's not time to upgrade your spouse. Because I know what some of you are thinking, oh yeah, here's the series I've been waiting for, right? And whether you're married or not, I want you to know that this is a series for everyone because whether you're single, divorced, widowed, in high school, middle school, college, statistics say that one day you're going to be married. You're going to be in a marriage relationship. So in this series, you're going to learn how to do it the right way. So you may be the best ones to be here. We're going to talk about this weekend the biblical basis, the theological premise for marriage. Next week, we're going to get together and we're going to talk about same-sex marriage. We have to because it's become an issue in our culture that is the church we have to address, and there's hardly a week that goes by that the news media doesn't call us and ask, what is the church's position? And we tell them we don't have a church position, we have a biblical position, and we'll discuss it on our terms, not through the media. So we're going to do that next weekend. And then the next week, we're going to talk about sexual intimacy in marriage. I know everybody can't wait for that one. And then we're going to talk about communication. Then we're going to talk about reasons for, to get remarried once you've been divorced. There are some very strict guidelines in the Bible. And then the last week of our series, we're going to wrap it up by talking about some keys to a lifelong marriage. So we're really going to dig right in. We're going to cover it all. This is what I think you're going to discover. I think you're going to discover that we do not place the same importance on marriage that God does. That's what you're going to learn, especially this weekend. If you have your Bible, Matthew chapter 19, turn there. And I want to begin in Matthew 19 because I believe it is the most amazing passage in the Bible on the topic of marriage. And I say that because in this passage, Jesus himself, I mean, it's coming right from the source. Jesus himself, he addresses the issue of marriage and divorce, but in doing so, he gives us the purpose. He gives us the reason that God came up with this idea of marriage. And it may surprise you to know that it has nothing to do with a pretty wedding. It has nothing to do with your happiness. It doesn't really have anything to do with love, romance, and fulfillment. Matthew 19 lays out for us what is the biblical, the theological reason that God came up with marriage, and we're going to begin to understand why marriage, and let me stress this, as God designed it. Why marriage is God designed it is so important to our culture, in fact, to the very, very fabric of our society. So Matthew chapter 19, it begins by saying some Pharisees, and they were, they were the Christian, or the religious goody-goodies of that day. They came to him, to Jesus, to test him. Understand, this was a regular, everyday occurrence for Jesus. Uh, Jesus was taking away their crowd. They were now turning to follow Jesus and his teachings on grace and truth and love. And all of a sudden, these guys aren't happy. So on a regular basis, they would show up wherever Jesus was teaching, and they would try to ask him a question that would make Jesus uncomfortable or maybe make him look bad in front of his followers. So that's what's going on in Matthew chapter 9. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? It literally means this. Is there any legitimate reason under the sun to get a divorce? But what I want you to see is Jesus' answer, his response in verse 4. Haven't you read? It's almost as if Jesus is saying, are you crazy? Are you out of your mind? Haven't you read? Don't you understand what the Bible says? That at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, hang on to that phrase. I'll come back to it in a minute. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will, look at this, become one flesh. Let me say that again. The two who get married will become one flesh. Now let me just ask you a question. Does Jesus have a tendency to lie, exaggerate, embellish the truth? You're a little slow on that. The answer is no. Okay, just so you know, the answer is no. He doesn't do that. So he says two are going to become one flesh. He's not lying. He's not exaggerating. He's not embellishing the truth. He says it again. They are no longer two but one flesh. And then he adds this. 
Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So Jesus is saying this. When a man and a woman are united in marriage, understand it is God that joins them together. This word joins means glue. It's the idea of gluing two boards together in such a way you cannot separate those two boards without there being irreparable damage. So he says God joins those people together. God glues those people together. A minister doesn't do that. A priest doesn't do that. A judge or a justice of the peace does. God is the one who actually joins this couple together. So they come to him and they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And Jesus basically responds, don't let anybody mess with what God, with what God joins together. And so they ask another question in verse 7. Why then, they ask, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted. In other words, he said, stop right where you're stopping your track. He didn't command it. He permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. What Jesus is saying is this. Before sin came into the world, there was no divorce. It wasn't that way. The reason that Moses permitted it is because you guys have hard hearts. The reason Moses permitted it is because you guys refused to treat your wife the way God intended for your wife to be treated. So he says, basically, Moses permitted it because you guys were jerks. You guys were acting like idiots, so he let it happen. So they start out, is it lawful under the law? By the way, understand this. Whenever the Bible refers to the law, it's referring to the Old Testament. All of the rules, the regulations, the thou shalt, thou shalt not, that was the law. But we know when Jesus came, it wasn't about the law. It says he was full of grace and truth. Look at this verse, John chapter 1, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And let me just say something here. A lot of times we use this phrase kind of as a cop-out. Yeah, that was the Old Testament. I'm under grace. And I think by saying that, we're thinking we can get away with a little bit more. You know where I hear this is when I talk about tithing. I get a million emails, oh, that was the Old Testament, that was under the law, we're under grace. Let me tell you something. God raised the bar when we got to grace. Jesus raised the standard. You know what Jesus said? Often when people were listening to Jesus' teaching, he would say stuff like this. You have heard it said. In other words, you have been taught your whole life, thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus says, I'm going to raise the bar under grace and truth. You can't even lust. You have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery murder. Jesus says, let me ratchet that up a little bit. You can't even hate in your heart. Yeah, tithing was part of the law. Do you know what the standard is in the New Testament? Becoming a life, living a life of generosity. That's much higher than tithing. So Jesus is raising the bar. Basically, he says this, the law permits you to get a divorce, a divorce. but grace says, don't let anybody mess with what God joins together. Now, let me just say this. If you've gone through a divorce, and according to statistics, about half of you have, and just so you know, the statistic really is no different inside the church than it is outside the church, I want you to know I'm not beating up on you. I'm not condemning you. That is never my goal when I speak. It's certainly not my goal this weekend. But you got to understand what the standard is in the Bible. you got to understand what God's expectations are because if you're ever going to experience the fullness of God's blessing on your life, you've got to figure out what God expects from you. In fact, this is why Jesus was so upset when they came to him. He's like, are you kidding me? Haven't you read? Haven't you been around long enough to know what God's standard is, what God's expectation is when it comes to this topic of marriage? But I want to go back to verse 4. I told you for this reason. Let me show you something. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made the male and female. I want you to think about this. And he said, for this 
reason. Now, here's my question. What was the reason that God, at the beginning, made them male and female, brought them together and joined them together in marriage? Let me give you three theological reasons for marriage, and you're going to see that God takes this issue of marriage much more importantly than we do. Here's the first one. The marriage of a Christian man and woman is a reflection of God on this earth. It's a reflection of the Godhead on this earth. Now, I know immediately some of you singles are like, wait a minute, don't I reflect God's image on this earth? Yes, but you know what? There's certain things about the Godhead that are only reflected through a Christian husband and wife. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us, plural, who's us? He hasn't created anybody yet. Well, it's a reference to the Trinity. One of the first references of the Trinity in the Bible. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit working in unison. Let us make mankind, plural, in our image, in our likeness, plural, so that they, plural, may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and the livestock, all that other stuff. Now look at this next one. So God created mankind, plural, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. My point is this, it is very important to understand that what God created in his image was male and female, not just male. And so, I, and I say that so you understand that male is not the image of God. Male and female is the image of God. So think of it this way. God said, I want to put a portrait. I want to put a replica of myself on the earth. And when he decided, I want to put a portrait, I want to put a replica of myself on the earth, he put a husband and a wife. Now I'm going to show you why. But this is what I want you to understand. The marriage of a Christian man and woman is the image of the Godhead on this earth. Here's the first reason. It reflects the Trinity. You say, wait a second, Mike. The Trinity is made up of three. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Well, understand a Christian marriage is made up of three. A man, a woman, and God. Becoming one. Now next week I'll talk about same-sex marriage and same-sex unions. And Let me just say this. I'll show my hand. Government can do anything it wants to do, can make any decision it wants in an attempt to be politically correct and fairness. But you got to understand, from a biblical, a biblical perspective, the marriage of a Christian man and woman is the image of the Godhead on this earth. Now, having set that aside, what are some practical implications of that fact when it comes to our marriages? Well, let's say that... Uh, Let's say that you're a Christian husband and wife. You're living out marriage as God intended, right? And so an unbelieving couple comes over to your house. When they leave, they should leave scratching their head because they're seeing something. They are witnessing something they can't see anywhere else on earth except in the presence of a Christian husband and wife. They're seeing a representation of the Godhead, or at least that's what they should be seeing. And they should leave, for example, if they come to my house, they should leave thinking this, wow. They should get in the car and he should say, honey, did you, did you pick up on that? I mean, they are two, two distinct, different individuals. I mean, Laura, she's pretty and classy. Mike, he's like an old idiot redneck. Right? I mean, they couldn't, they couldn't be any different. But you know what? They are one. Did you sense they are as different as night and day, but there was incredible unity? You see, with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they're made up of three, the, the Trinity is made up of three complete individual persons, but they are one. So for God to create a replica of himself on earth, that replica had to be plural and yet at the same time, one. My point is this, man and woman is not the image of God. Man and man is not the image of God. Woman and woman is not the image of God. 
A Christian husband and wife is the image of the Godhead on this earth. In other words, when God wanted to create something that looked like himself, he created a married couple. He created a husband and wife, and that's why when we get married, understand, that's why from God's perspective, we're no longer two separate individuals. We say that at every wedding ceremony. It's almost cliche, cute little thing to say, oh, we're so unified right now. But you got to understand from God's perspective, he glued you together, and he sees you as one. By the way, another thing, the Trinity also explains why we can be equal as a husband and wife, and at the same time, the husband can be the head. The husband can be the leader. Now, here's the problem. The world doesn't understand that concept. They, they don't understand that two people can be equal, and yet at the same time, one of those people can be the leader. Because in the world system, if you're the leader, then you're greater than the other, right? Not a problem in God's system. You've got God the Father. You've got God the Son. You've got God the Holy Spirit completely equal, but the Father is the head. That's why if you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus said on numerous uh, occasions, my job is to do the will of the Father. My job is to do the will of the one who sent me, to follow his marching orders. That's where I get my instructions. Let me show you a couple of verses. John chapter 12, verse 49. For I did not speak on my own initiative, Jesus says, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. Here's another one, John 5, 30. By myself, I can do nothing. You read that and you say, wait a second, that's Jesus talking. He can do anything he wants to. Jesus says, uh-uh, by myself I do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. So Jesus says, even though I'm the son of God equal with the Father, I get my marching orders. I take my instructions from my heavenly Father. And understand, in the very same way, when God made man and woman equal, even made them one, he did it, but he decided that man was going to be the head. And I want you to understand, God didn't make man the head because he was punishing women. He did it to put order in the home, equal but order, just like he put order in everything else that he created. And he didn't have to take equality out to put order in because with God, you can be equal and still have order. Now understand, this is one of the reasons why marriage is so important to God. And this is why Jesus got so upset when they came to him and kind of casually said, is it okay for us to get divorced? This is what Jesus was saying with his answer. You think the Trinity is ever going to get divorced? You think they're ever going to break up? Why in the world would you even ask me that question? Don't you understand that the husband and wife were created and designed to reflect the Godhead on this earth. So that's the first reason. Bless you. Second, the marriage of a Christian man and woman, now you know this, is a reflection of the relationship between Christ and the church. And when you read through the New Testament, the church is often referred to what? As the bride of Christ. He's the groom, we're the bride of Christ. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Husband, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, right? His bride. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Here it is again. And the two will become one flesh. Paul says, this is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. So what Paul is saying to this, 
Together, Laura and I, along with God, we represent the Trinity on this earth. But individually, I represent Jesus Christ, scary, and Laura represents his church, the bride. That's our jobs. But let me just throw this out to you. In our day-to-day relationships, what are the practical implications of this truth? Well, guys, let's say you go to the gym and you work out with a guy named Joe, and Joe knows you're a Christian, and Joe said he's not a Christian, so you've been building a relationship with him, and he knows you go to church on the weekend, and you serve, and you give, and you do, but he doesn't really care. But you've been sharing your faith, and you've told him, you know, the, the greatest decision you'll ever make in your life is to become a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, to get into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So maybe one day he finishes, you know, his reps on the bench, and he hops up, and he says, okay, here's my question for you. He says, Mike, if I become a Christian, what's it going to be like? What's it like to be in a relationship with Jesus? If I'm in a relationship with Jesus, how's he going to treat me? And you respond, well, if you decide to follow Jesus, he's going to treat you the same way I treat my wife. Let me ask you a question. What's Joe going to think about that response? I mean, is he going to say, whoa, wait a second. Whoa, I've hung out with you guys. I don't want to be treated the way you treat your wife. I don't want to be laughed at. I don't want to be ridiculed. I don't want to be insulted. I don't want to be put down. I think I'll pass on this whole Christian thing if that's what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus. Or would he say, you mean he's going to honor me? He's going to love me? And he's going to respect me? And he's going to forgive me no matter what? You mean he's going to provide for me? And he's going to protect me? And he's going to care for me? Mike, why didn't you explain this to me earlier? This is a no-brainer. I would love to be a Christian. I would love to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. You ever thought about it that way? Or ladies, you're taking a walk with your best friend, Sally. She's not a Christian. And as you're walking, she knows you're a Christian. You was just saying, this morning in my quiet time, I was praying and I was talking to God. And she kind of laughs and she says, I wouldn't even begin to know how to talk to God. And you say, well, that's easy. You just talk to God the same way I talk to my husband. Is Sally going to say, you mean you can cuss at God? That doesn't seem right. You can tell him he's an idiot, a loser, he's never going to amount to anything. That doesn't seem right. And you're like, no, 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 no. When you talk to God, you talk to him with honor and respect. My point is this. Marriage is much more important than we think. It's way beyond, but I'm not happy. Or I don't love you the way I used to. It is the image of God on this earth. And understand, it represents the relationship between Christ and the church. But it gets a little harder. Because third, the marriage of a Christian man and woman is a reflection of the covenant between God and us. The covenant that God has with us. You can read it on your own if you can find it, the book of Malachi. God tells the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, that he's not pleased with their worship. And as a result, he tells them, I'm not going to accept your sacrifices. I am not going to accept your offering. And they're like, why not? You can pick it up in Malachi chapter 2, verse 14. It is because the Lord is the witness The Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your, look at these two last words, the wife of your marriage covenant. In other words, in this situation, God says, I'm not happy with you with the way you're treating your spouse, and because of that, you know what? It's affecting my relationship with you. By the way, did you know that when you got married, did you even know that you entered into a covenant? And do you know, did you know that there were witnesses to that covenant? Sure, they were there. You invited them. But did you also know that God was a witness to your covenant? 
And did you realize that God may not be accepting your praise, your worship, he may not be hearing your prayers because of the way you're treating your wife, the way you're treating your spouse. She says, wait a second, Mike, Malachi, Old Testament, that's the law. We're not under law, we're under grace now. New Testament backs this up. First Peter chapter three, verse seven. Peter says, you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. Doesn't mean you're gonna understand her. That's never gonna happen. That's not what he's saying here. You gotta figure out how to live with your wife in an understanding way. Why? As with someone weaker, since she is a woman, you ladies hate that, don't you? You don't want to be thought of as weak. It doesn't say you're weak. It says you're weaker. It means if you go home after the service and arm wrestle your husband, he should win. <laughs> and if he doesn't, you keep that to yourself, ladies. That would be a way that you can honor. Don't you go tell his friends, I kicked his butt in arm wrestling. You should have been here, right? Don't do that. Just keep that to yourself. But really, it's saying more than that. It's saying God created women differently and as men, it's our responsibility to learn how to live with them in an understanding. How did he create them? This idea of weaker literally is, is sensitive, fragile. I'll give you an example. Most of us have a thermometer in our home, right? You wouldn't use a thermometer to pry open a window. You'd use a crowbar, right? But what's interesting is a thermometer is fragile and sensitive, but that's what makes it so valuable. It can tell you where your temperature is by a degree or two. It can tell you whether you get to the doctor. Your life might even be dangerous. A, a thermometer can actually save your life. But to be that valuable, it has to be that sensitive. God made women sensitive. It means you don't bounce back from things as easily as men do. You're more complicated. That's just the way God created you. That, that's why, ladies, you can pick up immediately when your husband offends somebody and he doesn't have any idea whatsoever. He didn't have a clue. It's because that's how God created. So Paul said, or Peter says, you got to learn to live with your wife in an understanding way because God made her more sensitive and show her honor. Look what it says. As a fellow heir of the grace of life. So, look what it says. So that your prayers will not be hindered. Mm. By the way, the word understanding could also be translated considerate. Live with your wife in a considerate way. In other words, take into account how God uniquely created her. She created you differently created her differently than you men, figure out how God created her and treat her accordingly. Otherwise, your relationship with God's going to take a hit and your prayers may not be answered. Men, do you know what that means? That means you can just quit praying about that business deal going through or that you'll get that promotion or that raise. In other words, if you're not treating your wife the way God wants you to, don't even waste your breath praying. That's what Peter's saying. Here's my point. Marriage is important to God. This is serious stuff. So much so, he says, if you don't treat each other as spouses the way I intended, for, listen, it's going to affect your relationship with me. You're in a covenant. And when you entered into the covenant, most of you said something like this. For better? Yeah. For richer? In sickness and in? And we were too stupid to not stop there, right? So we went ahead and said, the death us do part. Let's just throw it all out there, right? That's the deal you made. That's the covenant you entered into. That's the vow you gave to God. Let me tell you why this is so important. From a, from a theological perspective, we're trying to change the world by telling people that God wants to enter into a covenant with them. They don't know what a covenant is. They're like, what's a covenant? I mean, I know my homeowner has one, but homeowners, but what, what's a covenant? Well, it's like a relationship. 
Well, what's that like? What's this relationship covenant like? Here's your answer. It's like marriage. What's their response? You mean I have a 50-50 chance with God? I mean, do you see how by the way we're living out our marriages, we're showing the world a distorted image of God because we're not living up to the covenant we made before witnesses and before God no matter what. By the way, we're talking about the new covenant, not the old covenant. Here's a synopsis of the old covenant. God said to Israel, I'm going to provide for you, I'm going to protect you, and I'm going to bless you. That's my promise to you. And Israel's like, that's cool. What do we do? God said, well, for your part, you have to be perfect. You can't lie, you can't steal, you can't cheat, you can't, you can't kill, you can't covet, you can't commit adultery, you can't, you got to honor your parents, you got to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, you can't have any gods before me, and by the way, you can't have any idols. Plus, you have to do all of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. <laughs> I'm telling you, the old t- covenant was tough. Did you know there's an entire, how many of you have read the Levit- Leviticus, and don't lie, because most of us just skipped that one. Three of you, good. There's a, there's a chapter, and I could say anything. Aliens, it talks about aliens and men from outer space. No, I'm just kidding. Did you know there's a chapter in Leviticus that tells you a whole chapter about what you had to do if you were a Hebrew person, if you got a scab? Whole chapter of instructions. You know one of the favorite verses people love to send me? I think they only know this one, many of you. Leviticus 19.28, you know what it says? Don't have tattoos. Because they know I have tattoos. No one has ever sent me Leviticus chapter 19, verse 27. Don't cut your hair. <laughs> Isn't that odd? <laughs> no one's ever sent me the verse earlier in the chapter that says you can't plant two different seeds in one field. You can't plant butter beans and corn side by side in the same field. All of Fuquay's going to hell. If that's the case, butter beans and corn, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you can't have two different threads in one garment. No cotton and polyester, no wool and cashmere. God said, no. You know what I think? I think the Trinity had an absolute blast just writing the book of Leviticus. I could see the Holy Spirit say, well, if they do that, let's tell them they got to wait three days. And God's like, no, 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 seven days. Let's make them wait seven days. They're laughing, right? You say, why would God do that? Part of his reason to show that his standard is perfection. So he gets into the law and he shows all the intricacies of perfection so that mankind would finally have to admit, I can't do this. I can't be perfect. I'm telling you, when we get there, God is like, that is so cool. That's what I've been waiting for. I never, ever wanted a relationship based on rules and regulations. I wanted a relationship based on love. But in the old covenant, God says to Israel, you got to be perfect. Israel's like, okay, we'll be perfect. That's what we're going to do. We're going to keep the whole law, and God, if we, if we don't, you just kill us. I mean, it's in there. You read it for yourself. That's the old covenant. But the covenant that marriage is based on is a new covenant. Let me tell you what the new covenant is. God went to Israel and said, you guys really stink at keeping this old covenant. So I'm going to come up with a new one. Here's the new covenant. I'm going to provide for you, I'm going to protect you, and I'm going to bless you. Here's your part. On second thought, just forget it. I'm going to do your part too. I'm going to give you Jesus. By the way, let me just say you something maybe you never thought about before. The old covenant, the law, you know, all those do's and don'ts and Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, did you know it was designed to become obsolete? It was actually designed to go out of date. 
When Jesus was on the cross, what's the last thing he said? It is finished. It's complete. It's done. He was talking about that whole Levitical system. He was saying, it's done. It's taken care of. You no longer need a priest to get to God. You can approach him through me. You no longer need a sacrifice. I will be your sacrifice. You no longer need to be perfect. I'm going to give you my righteousness. We're setting the whole Levitical Old Testament ritual aside. And as a result, we get to approach God directly through his son, Jesus Christ. So I understand the law was designed to become obsolete, sort of like your iPhone. You know, you know you buy it in a month, they're going to have something better, and yours is going to be obsolete, right? The law was designed to become obsolete, go out of date, but let me clarify something, not in its application. None of the Bible is obsolete in its application, but in its daily practical impact and interpretation. See, we don't need the book of Leviticus to find access to God. Jesus took care of that for us. He did our part. We couldn't do it. So he fulfilled the law for us. He died on the cross for us. He shed his blood for us. See, that's what the gospel is. Maybe you didn't know that. You say, how in the world do I get in on this new covenant? Well, I'm going to tell you, but you're not going to believe me. You just believe and accept it. You believe that what Jesus did is what it takes for you to have access to God, to be reconciled back to God, that you can't get to God on your own. You believe it when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You're only going to get to the Father through me. You believe that. You accept it. You appropriate it in your life. You adjust your life accordingly to God's word. That's all it takes. You accept and you believe. It's just like the covenant that God made with Abraham. You can read all about it in, in, in Genesis chapter 15. Do you know what Abraham was doing while God was making the covenant? He was over asleep under a tree. God's doing all the work. My point is this. God didn't need Abraham. He just needed Abraham to believe. That's why Romans 4.3 says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. As if God took a big stamp and stamped right across, across his life. Righteous, perfect, my child. And when you enter into that new covenant with God, let me tell you something. And this is so important. Even if you walk away from God, just like the prodigal son, he will never walk away from you. I can't even begin to tell you how many times I've broken the covenant in my relationship with God. But God has never broken it. You've done the same thing. Now, this is what I want you to understand. This is why marriage is so important. Marriage is this. Marriage is saying to that person you made that covenant with, even if you don't do the right thing, I will. Even if you don't keep your part of the covenant, I will. And that's why the world ought to be able to look at a godly marriage and say, wow, wow, look at them. Look at how they treat each other. Look at how they're distinct, but they're one. That uni If that's a reflection of God, I want to know God. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Now, I know the temptation is to feel condemned if you've been in multiple marriage or you're divorced or whatever. That's not the point. The point is you have to know God's standard. You can't go and undo the past, but you can say from here on out, okay, now I get it. I know what his expectations are. I'm going to do it God's way. If I'm in a marriage that's falling apart, I have got to figure out how to make it work. I made a covenant. And I know we're going to get into all kinds of things. Don't even email me. What if I want to, but they don't want to? Let me finish the series before you email me, Okay. But you know what God's expectations are, right? Maybe you're getting ready to get married. Now that you know what God's expectations are, I would tell you this. If you're not ready to make that kind of covenant, 
Not just flowery things to say at a wedding ceremony. Abort, 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 abort. Now, next week, we're going to talk about same-sex marriage and, and does, does it fit the guidelines. And let me, just, let me just preface it. I'm going to ask you to pray this week like you've never prayed because I know that this can be a very divisive issue. But you know what? I'm okay with it because it's not my opinion. I'm, I'm going to base it strictly on Scripture. I'm bringing in a guy all the way from England who's written a book on the topic. He's going to be part of our time together next weekend. Brings a totally unique perspective on it. You need to be here for that. But I'm already getting the emails saying, well, homosexuality is a sin. It is a sin. The Bible says it's a sin. I don't have the freedom to change that. I didn't write it. I don't have the authority to change it. But we have to be careful. Somebody sent me an email. Says it's, it's an abomination, and, and, and gays should not even be allowed in our church. Let me just remind you of something. Let me just read something from you from Proverbs chapter 6. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, you know what that means? Pride. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies. But here's the seventh one. And a man who stirs up dissension among the brethren. God says, just, you know, Seven things I hate right there. You know what's interesting? Not in that list, the sin of homosexuality. So this is what I'm going to tell you. Our mission statement is we're going to love people where they are. We're going to encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ, to become everything God created them to be. To do that, you have to know the parameters of which God created. That's what we're going to talk about next weekend. I can't do anything about it. All I can do is point you in the right direction. You have to decide what you want to do with it. But I'm still going to love you where you are. And I'm going to still encourage you to be the person that God created you to be. So we're going to talk about that next week. I hope you'll be in prayer throughout the week about how, how we're able to present that. Let's pray together. Again, with, with your heads bowed right before I pray, let me just say this. You can't undo the past. I don't care if you're in your second marriage, your 15th marriage. You're thinking about walking out on your first marriage. Now that you know what God's standard and expectation is. Now that you know how your marriage is so crucial to culture and society, I mean, you may have lost people in your life who are just looking to say, hey, how are they going to get through this? Are they any different than anybody else? It's a big deal. It's a big, big deal. And this is what I believe with all my heart. When we decide we're going to be obedient to God's standard, we're going to do everything within our power to make it work. I believe God just has a way of pouring out his healing grace. Nice couple right down here sitting in front of me who got divorced and God healed them and they got back together and got remarried. God can do some amazingly crazy things. But we have to do our part. We have to do our part. Father, thank you for the simple truth of your word. It's not complicated. It's just a matter of fact that we want to accept it. Do we want to incorporate it and appropriate it into our lives? Do we trust you? Do we trust you to stay in a marriage that may not be fulfilling and may not be bringing us happiness? Do we trust you enough to be obedient to you, to stay, to make it work, than to trust our own selves that by bailing out of the marriage, we'll actually be happier? It really comes down to how much do we trust you. And God, we can trust you. We can trust you. And God, life's not fair. We're going to see that this week. We're going to see it again next week. Life's not always fair. But you never said it would be. But you still call us to adapt to your life accordingly. So give us the courage to do that.
In your name we pray. Thank you.